when Michael asked me to speak and he told me, okay, we're going to be wrapping up a series on mental health, and I thought, I need a disclaimer because I am not a mental health professional. How am I going to approach this subject? And then I thought, well, I have a mind. And I am human, and I live the human experience, and I really asked God to bring me a message really that really spoke to me. So the message that I have for you today is one that I am working through. Life is a journey, and hopefully it's something that you can relate to as well. Will you join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, you have been faithful. You have been faithful in the past, and we know that you are in our future, and we ask that you will be here with us today and help us to really listen to you and the peace that you want for us. Let it overflow into our hearts and minds. In your name we pray, amen. So recently, uh, Pastor Michael had a sermon where he made a very interesting distinguishing comment about anxiety and depression. He said that anxiety related to the future and depression related to the past. So if we think about anxiety relating to the future, we think about things that we might be scared of in the future, and we think about depression in the past and things that we might have experienced, such as trauma, for example, what is in between those things? And today, what I really want to focus on is the present. The present that is between anxiety and depression. And in the present, can we find peace? It might be the only place where we can truly find peace is in the present. So I want to ask you, where are you today? I mean, I know you're here. We are sharing this space. I know that if you're joining virtually, you are here with us today, or we are here physically, but where are your thoughts? Are your thoughts in the past? Maybe you had a very difficult week. Uh, maybe you have struggles at home. Um, maybe you have suffered trauma that keeps coming back. Are you in the past? Uh, maybe you had a disagreement on the way to church this morning, and it's still lingering with you. Are you in the past? Are you in the future? Are you worried about bills that have to be paid, tests that have to be taken, unresolved issues with family members or friends that you don't see a clear path out of? Are you in the future? Are you thinking about lunch? Are you thinking about whether or not whatever argument started this morning is going to continue after you leave church? Sometimes we struggle with being in the present. Why is that? Going back to our verse, Paul says in Philippians 4, 6 through 7, do not be anxious about anything. Let's pause right there. If he's saying don't be anxious about anything, he's saying don't be anxious about your future. And then he says, but in every situation, that's the present, in every situation that you find yourself in, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, and this is going to be my challenge to you, that thanksgiving points to the future, to what God is going to do for us. Present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard not only your heart, but what else? Your mind. It is a protection for your heart and your mind. 
And if anybody understood suffering, it was Paul. I have a summary just in the book of Acts of the things that we know that Paul went through. So, he had his life threatened multiple times. He was stoned and left for dead. He was run out of several cities. He was beaten with rods and imprisoned. He lost his friend in Barnabas. He was mocked, cast out, and apprehended. He experienced a shipwreck, a snake bite. I think if I had experienced anything on that list, I would be discouraged. I would feel self-pity. I would think, why am I living? But how did Paul approach all of these problems? He didn't complain. Instead, he wrote about certain themes, joy, gratitude, humility, appreciation, and he strived for peace of mind. How? How? Through all of that suffering, we all know his writing was from a jail cell, but even when he wasn't in jail, his life was marked with suffering. Paul says in Philippians 1.12, which I think is so ironic after he's describing some of the things that are happening in jail, he says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. He's saying, don't feel sorry for me because what I am going through is advancing the work of God. So I know that my struggles are worth it. He was not a victim. So I tried to uh, do a Google search because I was really interested in the fact that the themes of joy and rejoicing throughout the book of Philippians kept coming up. So I said, okay, Google, how many times is the word rejoicing in the book of Philippians? And uh, Google didn't have a very good answer. So I physically went through, so this is an inaccurate count. At least a dozen times in four chapters does Paul talk about joy or rejoicing. And I thought, wow, how did he find it in him to think about joy and rejoicing? And what does he do in his suffering? What does he provide to God? Thanksgiving. He says, thank you. Has someone ever done something to you where you have been suffering and your initial gut reaction is to turn around and say thank you? No, no, that is not our initial gut reaction. Recently, I was led to a podcast by Dr. Andrew Huberman, and he has a podcast called The Huberman Lab. And Dr. Huberman is a professor of neurobiology at Stanford University Medical Center, and he talks about neuroscience and the connections of the mind and the body. And he had an episode that I thought was so striking. It's the science of gratitude and how to build a gratitude practice. And some of the things that I learned in there go beyond some of the things that I thought I knew about gratitude. Did you know that the main neuromodulator associated with gratitude is serotonin? Whenever we feel grateful or experience gratitude or even give gratitude, there is a real effect on our brains. One major brain area that is triggered is your prefrontal cortex. And one thing that I learned is that the prefrontal cortex affects the context in which we view situations. So I'm gonna give you a quick example. When I was a little girl, I grew up in the Northeast. Have any of you been to an ocean, either in the Northeast or the Northwest, where the water is cold? Yes? Okay, when I was a little girl, all the water was cold. You went to swim in a lake, it was gonna be cold. You went to the beach, it was gonna be cold. 
but I wanted to swim. So I would gear myself up, right? Because I knew that it was gonna take a few minutes to get used to that water. And I would run into the water because I knew that on the other side of that initial suffering was gonna be pleasure because your body would get used to the cold water and you would love it and you would swim the rest of the day and then our parents couldn't get my brother and I back out of that water. When I was 19, yes, 19, um, my husband and I got married and we got to take a trip, our honeymoon. Our honeymoon was to La Isla Bonita, Puerto Rico. And it was the first time in my life that I had ever gotten in the ocean in the Caribbean. Okay, so I remember the first day of our honeymoon and we went out to the beach and I mentally braced myself and I thought, okay, we're going to run in the water, want to go swimming. And I ran into the water and I thought, this feels like a bathtub. <laughs> the water is warm. It's not cold. My mind was expecting one thing and my body experienced something else and I thought, oh, wow. No wonder everyone loves to swim in the Caribbean. But you know what? There's something inside of our prefrontal cortex that frames context, that allows us to be willing to go through some type of suffering knowing that there is good on the other side of it. And it's incredible that our minds are really made this way by our Creator. So gratitude. In recent studies, gratitude has actually been shown to affect the prefrontal cortex, which means that gratitude can help frame the context of our situations. Wow, this is very interesting. Studies show that a regular gratitude practice actually shifts the connectivity in our neurons, and it helps to do a lot of things, decrease fear, anxiety, and physically reduce inflammation. And if you're like me, I do a lot of reading, especially now that I've hit a certain decade on inflammation. And what I have learned is that inflammation is pretty much the cause of everything that, that hurts us as we get older. It's inflammation. So, wow, if gratitude can affect the brain and the brain has an effect on my body and all of these things are designed for good, all I can say is that this is by design. This is by design. Science is just confirming what we know already was designed in our best interest. Now, when we think about gratitude practice, uh, we do sometimes think about making a, a list, right? What's my list of things that I'm grateful for? And I know that when I was a mom, I, I probably did this to my children because my mother did it to me. All right, you need to think about what you're grateful for. And what do some of our lists sound like? I'm grateful for a warm house, I'm grateful for my bed, I'm grateful for a car that takes me places. Now, I love my bed just as much as anybody else, but there is actually something deeper to a gratitude practice than just listing the things that we might be grateful for, physical things, or even our friends and family. And this is where, the part where I think we can do better with a gratitude practice. Dr. Huberman outlines elements of an effective gratitude practice and that they should contain three things. Number one, the association of empathy or sympathy. This is for them to be most effective. They're grounded in a story and they focus on giving or receiving thanks. And this is the part that I thought was even most interesting. Did you know that the most potent for our brains of a gratitude practice 
is not giving thanks, but receiving it. When we receive thanks from somebody else who we love or who we have respect from or for, there's empathy and we receive gratitude, it actually alters our brains. Now, let's take that back a little bit. That means that if I tell somebody, thank you, from a genuine point of view, thank you, then I have the ability to alter their brain. Wow, this is incredible. This has to be by design. The idea of story, number two, I thought this is really interesting. So the most effective gratitude practice is grounded in the idea of story. So this took me right back to the Bible. How did Jesus relate to his disciples? Through story. Jesus took stories and he, and he taught with them. He led with them. When you look at the books of the Bible, Jesus used story. Of course he did. Why? Because he is our creator and he knows how our brain works. And he knew that story was the best avenue to reach us. And I think that that is so incredible because story has a lot of power. And one of the things that story has that is powerful is that story brings you back to the present. Story brings us back to what is happening right now. When you're listening to a story, it's very difficult to be thinking about the future or thinking about the past. So I know that no one here has done this, but you know when someone is giving a sermon or a lecture, I'm giving out one of my uh, tricks when I was a professor and would lecture, Anytime you start to see your students' eyes glaze over a little bit, I would always have a story in my back pocket. <laughs> and as soon as I went to story, uh, then they all perked up and paid attention. There was power in telling a story. So I always wanted to have two or three stories ready to bring the class back to the present and back to what we were talking about in that moment. When I was in the fourth grade, my grandparents uh, were living with us. My grandparents are from Chile in South America, and I had never met them. I had met them for the first time when I was nine years old. Um, their papers had gone through, and they were able to come to the United States and live with us. And that was a wonderful time, because up until that point, this was my only set of living grandparents. And so I was able to have that experience that I had not had up until that time of having grandparents. My brother and I went to a school where my parents would drop us off, but then on the way back, we would take a school bus. And that school bus would drop us off. It was kind of like a suburban area um, in New York. And it would drop us off on a corner, and we would walk home. And I remember during the years that my grandparents lived with us that my brother and I would get dropped off on the bus stop, we would walk home, and instead of the house being empty, I mean, the, the wonderful thing about grandparents, instead of the house being empty, my grandmother was there making us a snack, and my grandfather was there, and he was a very uh, large man. He had thick white hair that he would comb back, <laughs> and he always had a white handkerchief. You know, it was from this era of always having a white handkerchief in his pocket. And any time that he would talk to us, he would pull out the handkerchief, and it almost became part of the conversation as this handkerchief in his hand. And I remember that what he used to do while my grandmother was making us something to eat is that he would sit in a chair and ask my brother and I to sit down, and he would tell us a story. And for those five or 10 minutes after school, my brother and I, we were captivated. 
we have some pictures where we're just sitting cross-legged, staring at my grandfather. And there was one story that he always told. And it was a story about a tree that grew golden apples. So it was a tree, a, a tree that grew golden apples and a little boy who had stolen one of the golden apples. Now, I know that my grandfather told us stories almost every day and that there were probably other stories that he told. But what I remember is that my brother and I always went back to the story of the golden apple. And any time that he asked us, what story do you want to hear? We would say, the story of the golden apple. And that memory is now embedded in my mind. Why? I had empathy for my grandfather. I loved him. And the act of him telling us that story brought us into the present. Anything that had happened at school had gone away. We weren't worried about anything else. We were in the moment listening to the story that my grandfather was telling me. So this makes me think about Philippians. In my Bible, it's kind of hard on your phone because on your phone, all the text just runs up and down. But when you look in Philippians chapter 2 in a, in a Bible, in the book, there's a section in there where the chapter is a little bit offset and it almost looks like Paul stops what he's saying to tell a story. And it's like he's going through and he's giving the advice and he's giving all this advice and then he stops to tell a story. This is in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. He says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset, mindset as Jesus Christ. Now he knows that the people that he is talking to, he has empathy for them, he knows them, and they know him. And he's about to tell them a story that they have heard many, many times. They know the story, but he is stopping in the middle of this chapter to tell the story again. He says, have the mindset as Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. He's saying, we have a God, and he was in heaven, and he's in charge of everything, but he didn't use that to his own advantage. In, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness, God came down and he became human and being found in appearance as a man. I mean, think of this in the terms of a story. There was a God and he became a man. He became a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. A God who was in charge of death became obedient to death. Wow, how does this affect me? I have empathy for this. I cannot believe that a God would do this, that my God would do this, even death on a cross. Your God was willing to suffer for you. That is the story. Therefore, God, what happens next? We can't stop there. That's the middle of the story. That is not the end. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the time of Jesus, every knee should bow 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. He just stops in the middle of the chapter to tell this story, to say, you know what? God was willing to go through the suffering. He was willing to die, but he is victorious. He is victorious, and that is the gospel, because he loved you. Friends, this book, the book of the Bible, it's a love story. It is a love story. And through this story, we experience empathy for the sacrifice that Jesus had for us. We experience love. We experience triumph, but not because of anything that we have done, but because of what God was willing to do for us. And when I think of this, when I think of the story that Jesus died for me, what can I be left with other than gratitude? What can I be left with other than thanks? Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. That's all I can do is be left with gratitude. And here's the crazy thing. If we are made in the image of God, then that means that our minds are also made in the image of God. And this week it struck me that if my mind is made in the image of God, and it, there is even an inkling of a reflection of my mind, which I feel like is so constrained, and God's mind is so perfect and vast, and me receiving gratitude, if the act of me receiving gratitude has a positive effect on my mind, does me giving praise and worship to God, how does that affect him? How does that affect my creator? I want to give worship to God. I want to give thanks to God. Why? Because it is, it is a reflection of what he has done for me. And I know that this is really a circular thing. I cannot believe that God was willing to come down and die for us. And that is the story that we have the privilege to tell. That is a story that brings us into the present. That is the story that gives us the peace that passes understanding. There is a verse, a quote from Ellen G. White, actually. And you know, the reason why I love this quote, the same thing, emotional connection. Uh, when I was in high school, when I graduated from high school, my mom had written me a letter and she included this quote. And since then, it's really struck me and always been with me. But I thought it was interesting, the, the opening line, the opening phrase of this quote, it says, in reviewing our past history. So if you think of your life, everything that's happened to you so far in your life, right? In reviewing our past history, having traveled over every step of advance to our present standing. So we're not talking about the future yet. We're saying, take history, take a history of everything that has happened to you so far, and now where are you today? Today, I can say, praise God. Praise God. As I see what God has wrought, I am filled with astonishment and with confidence in Christ as a leader. Next slide, please. We have nothing to fear of the future. Okay, so we're talking about our past. We're talking about our present. Now, what does Ellen White say? You have nothing to fear of the future. Except we should forget the way the Lord has led us and his teaching in our past 
history. Friends, we have nothing to fear of the future. God is already there. We have nothing to fear of the past. God has already brought us through it. In the present, we are able to have a peace that transcends understanding, not because our struggles are gone, but because we are part of a story that transcends everything on this earth. It is a story where God has already been victorious for me and for you. And that is a story that can give us peace, change our hearts, change our minds, and lead us through the future, thanks to the story and sacrifice of God.